You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. Um, And if you are able, out of respect for God's Word, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be reading the entire chapter this morning as we continue in our series on Abraham in the Old Testament. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. Thanks be. All right, well, good morning, Town Center, and thank you, Brad. Does Vancouver feel like a fast-paced city to you, especially as the Christmas season draws near? Unless you're coming from a place like New York, most people I talk to say Vancouver feels very busy and fast-paced. We drive fast, walk fast, make decisions fast. We work long hours and rush against the clock to get more and more done. In fact, psychologists now diagnose people with something known as hurry sickness, which can be defined as a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Does that sound familiar? Everything is getting faster, and we live in a culture of instant gratification. Shop Amazon Prime and your product shows up within a day. Place your Starbucks order on your phone and pick it up on the way. 
No need to drive to Blockbuster, just turn on Netflix and if you've got more movies at your fingertips than any video store would ever have to offer. The market is hot for services like these. Why? Because time is precious. You can make money back, you can reacquire possessions, but you can't get back more time. So people are willing to pay money to save time for the sake of convenience. Time is valuable. So when the clock is ticking and things aren't going the way that you hoped, we have a word for this. We call it stress. Now, how do you respond under stress? Do you freeze under pressure and check out? Do you become angry? Do you break down in tears and wish things were different, kind of bargaining? Or do you take things into your own hands, double down on your efforts through control? It's too real, isn't it? Well, you're in good company because this is what we see Sarah and Abraham do under stress. When the clock is ticking and things weren't going as they thought they would, they chose to take a shortcut. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, or just to simply recap, over the last several weeks, we've been journeying through a series on the life of Abraham. Now, God spoke to Abraham and told him that he would have many descendants and become a great nation for the purpose of being a blessing to other nations. The issue, though, is that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, aren't able to conceive. So we've been learning a lot about faith in this series. Abraham believes God will fulfill his promise, but as the years continue to go by without any child, doubt and impatience creep in. And this is where we find ourselves this morning. So if you were with us last week, we covered Genesis 18 to 19. So this morning we're actually getting in our time machine and going back to Genesis 16. I'm still not 100% sure why we did that, but anyways, here we are. Um, and so in the beginning of chapter 18, if you were here last week, you would have learned that Abraham and Sarah find out from God that they're going to have a child within the year. But here in Genesis 16, obviously they don't have that knowledge yet. So we see that Sarah is getting impatient and saddened that she is without any children to this point. It's been 10 years living in the land of Canaan, and still the promise hasn't started unfolding, and she's in her late 70s. Now, it's easy to just kind of skim over the facts of this passage, but I, I want to first acknowledge like, how hard this must have been for Sarah and Abraham or for anyone who has found themselves in a similar spot, to have the desire for children and to be unable to conceive. I can't even imagine the, the pain that that must cause. Not only the negative emotions that come with infertility, but also the toll it takes on a couple mentally, especially with how much stigma there can be around it. But this is a very common human experience. In fact, the World Health Organization estimates that approximately one in six, or 17.5% of the global adult population experience infertility, which is defined as being unable to conceive within a year. So I say this because we don't know what burdens people are carrying. So as the church, we need to be people of sensitivity people of love, and people of safety, of all places 
the church should be the safest place for those who carry any host of burdens, including infertility. And we see that this is what Abraham and Sarah were facing. And so returning to the story, Sarah comes up with a plan to move things along according to her own timeline. She felt that God could use a little help getting the whole promise thing going. Now, in this ancient culture, it was a very serious matter if a man had no children to become heirs, but it was even more serious for a woman. Her social status and worth were dependent on having children, and if she couldn't, she'd be seen as a failure of a wife. So wealthier women would resort to surrogate motherhood through their servants or their slaves by having their husbands sleep with them. In this way, the barren woman could then see the child as her own and have some level of control, whereas she wouldn't if her husband just simply took another wife for himself. So it was legal in this day, in this context, to have a slave to produce an heir. But this doesn't mean that it was God's intended ideal. There's a lot of thorny issues this morning. Slavery's one of them. And so he never told Sarah to take a slave. He never told Abraham and Sarah to use her to conceive. And we're going to be learning that slavery is, is completely opposed to, to God's intention, right? That, like, people are made in the image of God. And the fact that, like, we're all valued means slavery should not exist in the eyes of God. But even though Sarah took the normal human route in that context under the circumstances, it still demonstrated a lack of faith in the promise and a departure from God's will. So I'm going to unpack this passage by looking first at the blindness of Abraham and Sarah, then looking at the God who sees before finishing with a call for us to trust and see. Listen carefully to the wording of Abraham and Sarah's actions. It says, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. Sarah took Hagar and gave her to Abraham. Do you guys recognize the echo there? Of listening to the voice of his wife, taking, giving to her husband? Does that ring any bells? Yeah? Maybe the Garden of Eden? Remember that? When Adam listened to the voice of his wife, Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. Yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't a great moment uh, in history, was it? Um, that's how sin entered the world and led to the fracturing of relationships between Adam and Eve and their relationship with God and with the earth. And we call this the fall. And so it's, it's no coincidence that the author of Genesis uses these same terms, the same cluster of words here in Genesis 16. Make no mistake, this is meant to condemn the actions of Abraham and Sarah and bring the reader's mind back to Genesis 3, saying this isn't the way it was supposed to be. This is, this is intentional. But the plan worked. Hagar conceives, and they lived happily ever after. All four of them. Not quite. Instead, we start to see why polygamy isn't part of God's design either. Things went according to Sarah's plan, but then she gets jealous. Hagar seems to rub it in a little bit if you look at verse 5. So Sarah becomes, becomes angry. Angry at who? Well, Abraham. Isn't that funny? Like, how dare you do what I told you to do? And basically she curses him. She says, may the wrong done to me be on you. I don't know. This, this is the story. Now, how do you respond when you're cursed? Do you retaliate? 
lash out, get defensive. That, that one's like a pretty nice one to resort to. What does Abraham do? He says, she's your servant. Do what you want with her. He uses Hagar as a shield whom Sarah can redirect her anger against. In other words, don't be mad at me. Be mad at her. She belongs to you. It's interesting how, like, Abraham does this, like, quite a bit, like, kind of, like, averts himself from danger. Remember when he, like, used Sarah to do this in front of, like, Pharaoh as well? Seems like a tactic that he resorts to. But what's interesting, though, is that Hagar is now Abraham's wife. If you look in, I think it was verse 3 or 4. Sarah had given her to Abraham, and she is, she is the mother of his child in the womb. So Hagar is therefore worthy of Abraham's protection. But what do we learn? Sarah dealt harshly with her. Now this is the same word used to describe the suffering endured by the Israelites in Egypt as slaves in Exodus 1.11. Let that sink in for a moment. What a reversal. An Egyptian being abused and oppressed by an Israelite. So first, Hagar was exploited by Abraham and Sarah, and exploitation, just so we're clear, is the act of using someone unfairly for your own advantage. And then after being exploited, she was abused by Sarah as Abraham just stood, stood by. Like, that's intense. Like, these are the people of God doing this. Like, it's not hard for me to see why many people struggle with the church and with Christianity. Exploitation and abuse happen in the church. Like, I wish I could say otherwise, but that would be dishonest. Now, if this is what some of the leaders do, who would want to follow their God? Now, let me be crystal clear. Exploitation and abuse are never okay. It's evil. It goes against everything that God stands for. Love, kindness, respect, self-control, equality, valuing one another. And this is important to know just because we see something recorded in the Bible doesn't mean that it has God's stamp of approval. This is an example of a story that is descriptive, not prescriptive. It describes what happens. It doesn't prescribe what to do. So again, this passage draws us back to Genesis 3, where humanity rebelled against God. God sets the example for us in this passage, not Abraham and Sarah. Again, Scripture isn't filled with heroes except one, Jesus Christ and him alone. So what happens next? Well, Hagar runs away. I mean, who wouldn't? This term for running away is actually frequently used in the Old Testament of people trying to escape from attempts to kill them. Now, we don't explicitly see this in the text, but who knows how bad the, the abuse got. The usage of the word is telling, though. Now, can you see why I titled this point The Blindness of Abraham and Sarah? They don't see Hagar. Like, they don't, they don't see her. They see a problem, and they use her to attempt to fix it. And not once do Abraham and Sarah call Hagar by her name. They refer to her the whole time throughout as the servant, the slave. Dang. It's very dehumanizing to reduce someone to their function, to what they can do, rather than seeing them for who they are. And this is actually characteristic of oppression. The moment you see people simply for what they can do for you or for society, you've made them inferior, subhuman, 
And in fact, this is how a lot of atrocities begin. And we see this is what Abraham and Sarah did. They used her for one purpose, to produce offspring. And to top it off, Sarah was abusive towards her. Hagar wasn't seen or treated as an equal. She was treated as subhuman. This was sin, degrading another person made in God's image. And why is this so bad? Well, I want to, want to leave it to Nancy Piercy to tell us why. She's one of the kind of leading Christian female thinkers in the world today. She says, indeed, the reason the fall is such a tragedy is precisely because humans have such high value to begin with. When a cheap trinket is broken, we toss it aside without a second thought. But when a priceless work of art is destroyed, we are heartbroken. The reason sin is so tragic is that it destroys a human being, a priceless masterpiece that reflects the character of the supreme artist. You guys get that? Every person in this room, every person who's ever lived in history, been made in God's image and therefore is priceless, has value and worth because you've been made. Now let's take a look at the God who sees. After Hagar fled to the desert, the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever the angel of the Lord appears, it's first thought to be a messenger of God, but by the end of the encounter, the angel is actually understood to be God himself appearing in human form, usually always bringing uh, good news or salvation. And we even see this in verse 13. Hagar refers to this angel as God. And Hagar's actually the first person in Scripture to be visited by God in the form of the angel of the Lord. And she's also the only woman, other than Eve, who God speaks to directly up to this point in Genesis. And what does that tell you about how much God valued Hagar? Now, there are a number of things that happen in this encounter for Hagar that contrast her encounter with Abraham and Sarah that I want to highlight. So first, in verse 8, God says, Hagar, servant of Sarai. He calls her by name, unlike Abraham and Sarah. She's more than just a number or a function. Secondly, in verse 10, the angel of the Lord gives her a promise like that of Abraham. It says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the same promise given to Abraham, except that it doesn't have a land component. That's pretty unreal, isn't it? Thirdly, she's heard by God. We know this because when God tells her to name her son Ishmael, the name Ishmael literally means God hears. So did you guys catch that? She's pursued by God and realizes that he cares for her. God calls her by name, hears her, and gives her an incredible promise. Can you imagine how that must have felt for her? How powerful that moment must have been? The contrast is so stark between how she was treated by Abraham and Sarah and how she's treated by God. So what's her response? She becomes the only person to name God in the Old Testament. She calls him El Roi, for she says, you are a God of seeing. Here I have seen him who looks after me. God saw her at Hagar's lowest point. She declared God is the one who sees. She knew that he had noticed her, that he was paying attention. We worship the God who sees. 
He saw the plight of Egypt and set his people free. He saw the people of Nineveh repent and he relented. He saw the disciples and called them. He saw the crowds and had compassion on them. He saw the faith of the four friends and healed the paralytic. He saw the blind man and restored his sight. He saw the rich young ruler and loved him. He saw Jerusalem and wept. He saw the cross and never looked back. And he sees you. He sees you. Like some of you walked in here today, no one said hello to you. You feel overlooked. Some of you are wondering if you matter. If you're worthy of love. God sees you. He knows your name. You're not overlooked by him. You're not looked down upon by him either. He knows you, he sees you, and he loves you. Do you believe all that? It's true. Why? Because he made you. You're his beloved. Down through the ages, God has revealed himself as the God who sees. Unlike Abraham and Sarah, God saw Hagar. And what does seeing do? Like there's something special about seeing one another, isn't there? Something in the eyes. Communicates dignity. God recognized Hagar's dignity, her value, her worth. God didn't give her dignity as though she never had it to begin with. He simply recognized what was there. Again, he made her with worth, value, dignity. It had been trampled upon, but God reminded her of who she was. So if you're looking for a reason to put your faith in Jesus, here's a good one. Your worth has been assigned. It doesn't have to be earned. Every single person has been created in the image of God with incredible dignity, value, and worth, regardless of sex, age, race, ability, sexual orientation, sins committed, you name it. Everyone made in the image of God. Like you can't get more valuable because you're already infinitely valuable to Jesus. And so every person you lock eyes with is immensely valuable because God made him or her. The image of God in people is the heartbeat of biblical ethics and is the reason why it's sinful to mistreat or abuse other human beings. Now with that in mind, here's a part of the passage I just kind of conveniently skipped over because it's hard to understand. In verse 9, after Hagar explains that she has fled from her mistress, Sarah, the angel of the Lord tells her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Like, how does that make any sense? But I just told you, like, who God is. Return to the one who's oppressing you? What? Like, God, the defender of the weak, tells Hagar to go back? This is a hard verse. And let me just say here that this is a unique situation in the story of Scripture, and God had a purpose in it somehow. So don't take this to mean that the Bible says that those who are in abusive relationships should return to the abuser if there's no desire for change. Like, not at all. But two notes on this verse. First, although it's not the ideal, I believe God was providing a way for Hagar's survival. Like, out in the desert, as a pregnant woman, you're not going to last very long. Uh, my wife and I, we have a six-month uh, daughter. She's over here in the corner. <laughs> so a year ago, I remember how hard pregnancy was for my wife. Like Jenny was constantly sick, 
even beyond the first trimester. You know, the women will tell you, oh, yeah, it'll lighten up in the second semester. Don't promise that in case it doesn't. But she lost her appetite for everything except, like, crackers and pho and, and juice. Um, she actually developed an appetite for juice. Like, I thought I was the juice consumer, and then, like, once pregnancy hit, it kind of it turned. But um, she didn't have the physical energy to go for walks around the neighborhood. And so I can't imagine Hagar experiencing all of that in the heat of the desert with no shelter, no access to basic needs. There's no phone 99 around the corner. There's no save on foods just beyond the tumbleweed. Like there's nothing, right? And so God, his instruction to return to Sarah was provisionary so that she could be taken care of. And we see at the end of the interaction with the angel of the Lord, this is what Hagar believes, that God looks after her. The second note I want to make is more theological than practical, and it's this. If we look at the promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 15, one chapter earlier, we see the promise of numerous descendants is accompanied by suffering. God told Abraham that his offspring would be enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. That's pretty weighty, isn't it? And similarly, we see here that Hagar will likely endure further mistreatment, but out of her will come the blessing of many descendants. And her first descendant, Ishmael, is promised a free-roaming experience, like a wild donkey, if you look at verse 12. And so the freedom that Hagar seeks will be realized in Ishmael. And it's interesting that in the promise given to Hagar, we see that the Lord listened and noticed her affliction. He wasn't aloof to it, And he'll continue to take care of her. In fact, we even see some hints of this at the end of the chapter and then again in chapter 21. So in verse 15 of our passage, Abraham might actually be protecting Hagar since there's no mention of Sarah enjoying the success of her own plan when the birth of Ishmael takes place. The child is seen as Abraham and Hagar's, not Abraham and Sarah's. And then in Genesis 21, we see that Hagar is eventually released from Sarah. It doesn't seem that Sarah's heart has changed at this point, although we do see that Abraham has compassion on Hagar. And so I wonder, could it be that God was providing a way out for her? I think so. And he continues to provide for her after she departs from Sarah and Abraham. So we've just dissected this passage, but now let's get more practical. Like this is a really hard passage, but it challenges us, challenges us to trust and to see. The story leaves us with two key questions, and the first is, how do you use power? This passage shows us how not to use power, but it also opens the door for how we should use power. Abraham and Sarah didn't see Hagar. They looked down on her as inferior. They used their positions of power to do evil by exploiting and abusing her. They didn't treat Hagar with love and respect, but with harsh treatment. They didn't dignify her, but God saw her. He dignified her. He loved her. This is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus doesn't promote a downward gaze 
on others, but an upward gaze at the cross and an eyeward gaze at others. The way of Jesus promotes equality and service to one another, not exploitation and the abuse of power over others. And we're invited into this story of Jesus. We're invited to become like the angel of the Lord who sees people. As the people of God, we're called to do justice by recognizing the image of God in others. And so, as you take an inventory of your own heart, do you look down on anyone or any people group? The call is to see them as those made in God's image. Now, we all hold power in some way or another. Whether you're a parent, a supervisor to employees, maybe a coach, a leader here in the church or in the community, the list goes on. There's a number of different things where you hold power to some extent. And the question is, how will you use your power? I think it's easy after hearing a passage like this, a story like this, to believe that power is like the enemy, like it should be shunned because it results in the oppression of others. But not always. So maybe before you can even answer the question, how do I use power? The first question needs to be, how do you see power? Well, listen to what Martin Luther King Jr., one of the most prominent leaders in the civil rights movement, had to say about power. He says, One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites, so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands against love. Power and love, they go together. Power is not the opposite of humility and servanthood, but power is to be used in servanthood and humility. It is a gift to be stewarded. And so I want to exhort you to see others and to steward your power, to love, and to bless them. Oh, I wonder what would have happened if Sarah saw the God who sees. If she truly understood that Hagar was made in God's image, how might the story have turned out differently? One more quote for you, Andy Crouch. He says this, All our uses of power ultimately will either reflect or distort the image of the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So may we reflect the true image of our King in the way that we use power, cruciform, for the benefit of others. And the second key question from this story is, do you trust God? And this is hard. Maybe you feel like Hagar today. I don't know where you are today in your faith, Maybe your walk with God has never been more vibrant. And if that's you, that's amazing. But maybe for you, your walk with God is is complex. You know he's real. Like you can't deny the things that point to his existence. But you struggle to trust if he's truly good because of what's happened to you. You feel like he's let you down. He was distant when you needed him the most. 
He let you suffer. You can't handle it when others, sorry, you can handle it when others don't notice. But if God doesn't notice, it's a whole other story. So perhaps you're deconstructing. Perhaps you're hanging on by a thread. Like, God, where were you when I was bullied in school? Where were you when I was fired with no explanation? Where were you when I was abused? Where were you when my family member passed away? Where were you when my marriage was on the rocks? Where are you in this situation with John Hawes? It's a good time to intervene. Do you care? You know that part of the answer is that we live in a broken, fallen world where people use their free will to hurt each other. But that still leaves us with many questions. I don't know why those things happen. I really don't. But I can tell you this. God is right in the middle of it. He is right in the middle of it. He weeps with you. He hears you. And he sees you. He'll never forsake you. Scripture tells us that he sees the downcast and the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. And that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm 33, 18. Now part of fearing God means we recognize he is God and we're not. That he has access to things that we can't see. And that we'll trust him when we can't see two feet in front of ourselves. When the sea is raging, we'll look him in the eye. We'll get out of the boat and we'll trust him. Even when we can't see what God's up to. Even when it feels like he's oblivious or ignorant or uncaring or aloof or apathetic. What would it look like for us to defy and resist the urge to believe that's true and instead double down on trusting that God is who he says he is, trusting the promises of Scripture? What if we took God at his word, trusted Hagar's word too, that God sees and takes care? I want to encourage you to lean in and hope and trust in God's steadfast love. And as we do that, we trust in the God of ages who saw Hagar, who had seen the suffering, the hurting, the lowly, and the downcast through history, and who sees you today. But maybe for you, it's more about trusting God in the waiting right now. Like Sarah and Abraham, you're struggling to be patient. So you're tempted to take things into your own hands. Maybe you're waiting on direction for your life what to do, where to live, what to study. You're waiting for that opportunity to move ahead in your career. You're waiting for a spouse, a child, and it's hard. I get it. Continue to press in to prayer. Don't give up asking until you know the answer. Last week we learned that God listens to the prayers of his people when we saw Abraham intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. God is a good father who knows what we need and when we need it. So be persistent in prayer. And finally, don't underestimate what God is doing in you through this waiting period. 
Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Character is formed through waiting. What if God is trying to form you more into his image to be a walking contradiction to the culture we live in? What if he's forging you into a vessel of patience that can shine so brightly in the midst of a dark, busy, impatient people? He might be raising up a leader in you like King David. Remember him? Anointed as the next king of Israel as a teenager, but appointed 15 years later. Imagine the patience he must have learned and the lessons that he must have learned as a shepherd in what it meant to be a leader years down the road. Maybe the answer is no, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it's wait because he wants to use your life as a living testimony for his kingdom and glory and for your blessing. Will you trust him? Let me pray. Well, Father, even when it's hard to trust you, we know that you're good. We know that you're sovereign, that you see us, that you hear us, that you care for us. God, it's one thing to know that in our minds, and it's another thing to know that in our hearts. And so, Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters this morning, for myself as well, that that would become heart knowledge. We would know that you are who you say you are. That, Father, in the midst of the, the hard situations that we each carry right now, the suffering, the waiting, maybe the silence, Lord, the pain, we just want to hold those situations out in front of you right now, saying, Lord, here it is. You know it, you see it. Believe that you care. Would you help me? Would you help me in this season walk through it? Would you grant me patience? Would you grant me what is needed to make it one day at a time? So, Father, I pray that you as the God of all comfort would comfort those who need comforting here today, that you would provide hope for those who are downcast, Lord, that you would remind these individuals that you are a God of love, you are the God who sees. And, Father, as we seek to be ambassadors for you. May we represent you well. Lord, in the way that we use power, will we do it in service of others for their blessing, to communicate love to a world that's hurting. So Jesus, would you form us more into your image? Would we become more like you? Jesus, we love you. We submit this all to you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.